The Old Testament lesson for today is from Numbers chapter 14, verses 11 through 20. This can be found on page 144 of your Pew Bible. When the Israelites rebelled against God by refusing to enter the promised land, God declares that he will strike them with a plague. However, Moses intercedes for them, and God once again forgives their rebellion. Our reading from Numbers chapter 14, beginning with the 11th verse. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me, in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. But Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it, for you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and and in a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, It is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give to them, that he has killed them in the wilderness. And now, please let the power of the Lord be great, as you have promised, saying, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. I had been in Stanwich for two years, and I thought it was going to be one of those spiritual pivotal moments. It was on Round Hill Road in the living room of a family that had just started attending Stanwich Church. Their brother was ill with cancer, and he was off to get some treatment, either in South America or Switzerland. It was pretty serious. And I wasn't expecting what came next. I thought I was there as this gathering. There were a number of influential people from Greenwich, probably 40 people. And the, the woman said, uh, we've started going to Stanwich Church. Uh, Chuck is our pastor. I'm going to ask him now come and pray for my brother-in-law. And I thought this was the moment. To give you context, for two years I'd been praying for God to start bringing signs and wonders to Greenwich. I believed he had sent me here for revival Everywhere we administered in the world, whether it was in New Jersey or Bamako, Mali, or in France or Nyack, we saw observable moments when we prayed and God broke in. I said, how, Lord, we're so comfortable here. How can we get to you if you don't break into our world? And so I prayed with faith, believing, and in Jesus' name, that he would be healed. I tell the story in my book, and this is the conclusion of that story. The story does not have a good ending, at least from my current vantage point. His physical health deteriorated and he died. And in the following years, the family splintered, their relationships became strained. Then I wrote this, I was disappointed. It seemed like the perfect time for God to work, even though I know that his ways are not my ways, I was still disappointed. 
Well, Chuck, that's a real killer when you're going to start preaching on prayer. <laughs> we need to be honest, though. Prayer is one of the most confusing things we do. The next chapter, I write about mystery and disappointment in prayer. There are things that we've prayed for for a long time, and we're wondering when God is going to show up. Does prayer really matter? As the old saint said, the prayer moves the arm of God. Really? Does it really matter to God? Does it make a difference in the world in which we live? Why do we have this reflex to pray? Uh, there was a study done in March 2020 at the University of Denmark in Copenhagen. This would be fun for our friends from Copenhagen who join Stanwich Church every Sunday to be a part of our worship. It was in the Department of Economics at the University of Denmark. They were looking for the societal, societal consequences of being in a pandemic. This is early in it. The title of the survey is In Crisis We Pray, Religiosity in COVID-19 Pandemic. How does an economic department get to In Crisis We Pray? Because they found that there was a spike in internet searches for information on prayer in March 2020. Maybe it goes with the words of C.S. Lewis, there are no atheists in foxholes. Prayer is the most glorious, mystical, confusing thing we do, and yet it's probably the most common thing we do in society. Philip Yancey says it this way, most of the struggles in my Christian life are found in the two same themes, why God doesn't act the way I want him to, and why I don't act the way he wants me to. <laughs> Prayer is the precise point where these two themes come together. We're in the middle of your preaching series, God Moves, and it shifts this week. It shifts to how we respond when God moves. When Nathan invited me last fall, I had in mind a passage I was going to preach, and I began developing it in my mind of where we were going to go. And then last month, Pastor David contacted me and said, this is the series we're in. We'd like you to preach from Numbers 14, but you can do whatever you want. <laughs> And then I read this passage, and I thought, how perfect, a conversation between Moses and God. We get to see some of the mystery of it. Uh, God chose this passage months ago while we were settling a date when we would be here. Isn't it amazing how he does that? That's where it's fun to be back at Stanwich. I was always wondering where God was going to show up. You'd come in here, and you never knew exactly what he was going to do. He wants to talk to us this morning about having an ongoing conversation with him. And this passage in Numbers 14 is very profound. If you're following the church series and you got the email this week, the title of it was Failure of Faith. Well, I'm going to suggest they got it wrong. It's really about the faith of one person who stands in the gap for other people so that God's hand would move in a fresh way. So let's explore the text a little bit to see what it teaches us on prayer. Numbers chapter 14, in my typical style, I'm just going to go verse by verse with us. Verse 11, and the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I've done among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. Wow, that's a pretty heavy word. I was teasing Nathan in the first service. He used to whine all the time that I would give him the hard passages <laughs> and I would preach these. And, and Nathan, uh, not only you whine, but David would whine as well about the passages that he'd get. What are you doing right now? Um, 
I'm giving God the glory that he assigned me this passage. It has nothing to do with you. It's not all about you, Nathan. Oh, I miss this. So great having community. But this is God lamenting. How long? Those of you who've been reading your Bible for a while, you recognize that prayer. It's usually the people of God crying out to him, how long, Lord, until that wayward son comes home? How long until that disease is gone? How long until you bring peace into the thing? Some of the things we prayed about today. But now God laments. His people are despising him. There's a contempt. He's liberated them from slavery. And what do they do? They complain. Just a couple chapters earlier, it's one of my favorite, all my passages are my favorite. Uh, There's this moment where Moses says to the Lord, how long am I going to put up with these people? Because the people are saying, oh Moses, we remember the good old days when we had cucumbers and leeks. The good old days when you were slaves? Is that the days you're remembering? It's kind of like they're saying, God, what have you done for us lately? Which is a common theme in our prayer. God is a jilted and unappreciated lover here, and basically he says, I'm going to wipe these people out. Now, God as judge is not the passage you want to preach when you come back to a congregation after three and a half years. But that's part of who God is. Listen, we all have an instinct for justice in us. If you don't believe you have an instinct for injustice for you, drive on 95 today and see what happens in your heart when somebody cuts you off. Right? We feel it inside of us. It's like the story of the man who was driving through his town. He was very active in the town. Police officer gave him a ticket for going four or five miles over the speed limit. He said to the officer, please, I'm on my way to help the community. Can't you give me a break? And the officer said, if you have a problem with this, take it up with the court. Later that week, he was umpiring. This man who was driving was umpiring a softball game. And the first batter up was from the police team. It was the officer who gave him the ticket. And the officer said, no hard feelings. You don't have any hard feelings about what happened. And the guy said, no hard feelings, but I suggest you swing on every pitch. (laughs) We have an instinct for justice, but we get messed up with God as judge. Because there's a tension. It's these two polarities. God's love, which embraces us, like Jesus saying to the women, I don't condemn you, but at the same time, he says, don't go and sin no more. It's the justice of God that feel like they're at polar opposites. The way I resolve this in my life is the goodness of God to know that his ways are not my ways, and he's not going to have judgment in a punitive way, but in a restorative way. That's who my God is, and that's who Moses' God is. So Moses talks to God now. But Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear of it, for you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land, they have heard of you, O Lord, and that you are in the midst of the people. For you, O Lord, have seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day, and in a pillar of fire by night. Now if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring the people into the land that he swore to give them that he has killed them in the wilderness. Moses gives God a history lesson. Isn't that interesting? That's why I've called this book, Speak Up, God is Listening, Listen Up, God is Speaking. This is a conversation with God. 
And this isn't Moses' first conversation with God. He's had multiple conversations to get to this point. And he begins giving a catalog. Lord, you have moved in this way in the past. I want you to move in that same way now. The longer you pray, you will call back in remembrance on the things that God has done. That will be a foundation for your prayer. Now, at this moment, I need to stop and say, Stanwich Church, you have been the most amazing family to our family, to Christian and Sasha and Chris, uh, Charles and Grant and Ingrid and I. Uh, the gifts of food and the financial support, but the best moments for me is Nathan would snap a picture of a bunch of you gathered in this sanctuary praying, and we knew that there were people standing with us. It's the history of those moments that you count on. Ingrid, in the beginning, uh, got this phrase from the Lord, praise before the breakthrough. It was very hard for her to pray. And she said, when I couldn't pray, I knew there were other people praying, and you were some of those people. So that's what Moses goes back to, with history to God. But we see Moses' underlying motivation, which is key to prayer. See, this isn't about Moses. This isn't about the people. Moses says, Lord, what about your fame? See, for Moses, it's not about what he gets. It's not about what's done. It's about God's name being lifted up. He wants him to be the one that's seen. If you think forward to Jesus teaching on prayer, he says, ask anything in my name. That can be a very confusing prayer unless you're living totally for the glory of Jesus. Because then you can be confident that you're not asking for yourself. You're just asking so that somehow there would be fame for his name. And he would be the one who is heard in the process. Moses goes on. He moves from conversation to intercession. And now, please let the power of the Lord be great, as you've promised, saying the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children on the third and fourth generation. Please. Pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Moses says, Lord, you said this before. He gives the Lord a lesson on his own character. When did the Lord say it to him? In Exodus chapter 20. And he gives him this special declaration, his steadfast love, his said, that very foundation of everything that comes from God, his patience, his forgiveness, and even his judgment flows from his head, which is always restorative. Because he has the best designs for us and he delights in us and wants to see his own character formed in us. Twice Moses says, please. Better word is it would be that he beseeched the Lord. If you think back to the old English, to pray, it was not only something that you did to God, it was something you did to one another. Good sir, I pray thee, give me this out of your mercy. Moses is saying, Lord, on the basis of what you've done in the past and on the basis of your character, please, please don't wipe these people out. Why? For the fame of your name. Verse 20 is powerful for me. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. So what? Does prayer really matter? Does it change the movements of God? If I take this at face value, 
seems that it does. Even if you're not convinced, maybe take Philip Yancey's word on prayer. I'm not convinced completely of all the aspects of prayer, he says, but the most compelling reason to pray is because Jesus prayed. So it moves me to talk to the Father as well. You see, for me, prayer is more about the conversation with God than what we get. Uh, I would love to take about a half an hour more to develop this passage because I think there's something else going on. I don't think that this was really God's intention. I believe that God was testing Moses to see if he was going to be the kind of leader that would be with these people for the next 40 years because they didn't need a hireling, they needed a shepherd. If you come Wednesday night, I'll tell you more about that. <laughs> so why is it so hard for us to pray? I'm going to simply use one word and apply it two ways. Noise. The first is spiritual noise. God is spirit. How do you talk to spirit? When the most of the things you're getting back from him are just insertions and impressions maybe a word of knowledge, a prophetic word, a movement that you feel of the Holy Spirit, how do you have that kind of conversation? Think about it. Even when he put on flesh, the Son comes as Jesus. Jesus is the most misunderstood person walking in his day. I don't think you could be any clearer than Jesus when he gave his central message. He says the kingdom of God is at hand. I mean, he says that over and over and over. He demonstrates it for them. In the 40 days between the resurrection and ascension, Luke says this of Jesus, for 40 days he taught them about the kingdom of God. And what did the disciples do? Immediately they say, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? See, God's hard to understand even when he has flesh on. It's a difficult, challenging space. You consider the fall that our relationship has been so strained. Uh, as Westerners, we tend to think of the fall as breaking the rules, but really the fall was about rupturing the relationship. What was once an easy conversation of walking with God in the garden now becomes strained. It even pours into our human conversation. Immediately, Adam and Eve go to blame and shame. And they miss the opportunity to really connect on a deep way. So if we're going to pray, we have to have a gained fluency in language. See, this prayer just didn't happen for Moses at this moment. He'd been praying and talking with God for 80 plus years. And he got used to hearing God's voice and he became comfortable having an honest conversation with God. Uh, Linnea, when she was in her early 20s, said to me once, Dad, how come you're always hearing from God? How do you know it's his voice? And I said, "Hun, when I call on the phone and don't say anything and just say, hey, how do you know it's me? She goes, I recognize your voice. I said, just that way. I've spent a lot of time talking with God so I can recognize his voice. We need to gain a prayer fluency to have this kind of conversation with God. Amen. Now think about it in the natural. I have three grandsons, each at a different stage of language acquisition. Grant is going to be one next month. He uh, likes to wake up at 5.30, so he's pop-pops every morning. I get him for two hours. Our conversation goes like this. Ba-ba-ba, ah-ba-ba-ba. 
and he throws stuff off of his chair, so I have to pick it up, and then he laughs. He recognizes a few words. I can say clap, and he'll go like this. In those early days of fighting for Charles, Ingrid uh, would praise all over the house, and so he loves praise music. I go out walking with him at 6.30 in the morning in Florida, and uh, I'm singing French songs to him, which annoy all the other people walking, but he's sitting there going, ooh, put his fingers up in the air, and he's getting the early stages. Declan is two years and nine months. He's to this and that. He can say dad, and Linnea can say to him on a FaceTime call, go show Pop-Pops how you can dunk the basketball. And he runs, gets his basketball, and he dunks it. Charles, who's three years and three uh, months, is taking every phrase in and repeating it over and over and over. You know how kids learn languages. They hear you say one thing. That's why when your kids swear, don't blame anybody else but yourself. <laughs> I forgot about this story. We got more time at 10:45, so I'll add it. Um, when we were in Bamako, uh, Jordan was really outgoing, and one of the missionaries said, "Come home with me, Jordan, and I'll get you croissants in the morning." And so Jordan said, "Sure." So we put a backpack together, and the next day, when the missionary came back, uh, Dennis he said to us, "Hey, so when people cut you off in the road, which one of you says idiot?" <laughs> that was Ingrid. <laughs> we said, "Why?" And he goes, "Every time somebody cut me off, Jordan would go idiot." So Charles repeats everything. He's learned this phrase, Pop-Pops spilled the coffee. And he can pepper it in multiple ways throughout the day because he's just repeating it to get language acquisition. But he's getting this vocabulary that's ridiculous. The other day I said to him when we were uh, doing something, hey, look at that front loader. And he goes, oh, no, no, Pop-Pops, that's silly. That's a skids. I don't know what a skids is. Uh, his mind is like... A sponge. So I've been memorizing scripture with him. Our most recent is trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. So I'll say, Charles, trust in the Lord. He'll go, trust in the Lord. And I'll say, lean not on your own understanding. He'll go, lean not on your own understanding. Now that next part has some heavy words, so before I can get it out, he goes, your path straight. He jumps right to the end. <laughs> You laughed, and that's all cute. But if I go into Emmaus Hall now and come up to you and go, this, that, pop-up spilled the coffee, you're going to look at me like I'm strange. Those of you who've learned another language as an adult know that humiliation of being in an adult body and speaking like a child. See, here's the problem why most of us don't get that fluency in prayer. We're generally people that don't like to be seen as not being in the know. And we won't give ourselves to the process of ba ba ba, just that. And we're missing out on opportunities to have conversations with God that are so rich and deep. I had one of the greatest blessings of growing up in a family in a church that believed kids should pray from the beginning. Not only did we pray in the house, but Wednesday night prayer meeting was not siloed out into different age groups, but we would get around metal chairs in the basement of the church, and I would hear the saints pray, and I learned how to pray. I'm sure that some of my early prayers in those situations sounded foolish to them, but as a kid, it didn't matter. But when you do it as an adult, it's pretty embarrassing. 
if we want to have a conversation with God in a relationship like Moses, we've got to put our pride down. And we need to get in spaces where we can pray. Do you want four words to start? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Father, I believe in your steadfast love. Speak to me. Jesus, you told me to ask anything in your name, so here I am asking. Holy Spirit, the scripture says that you would pray for, through me even when I cannot pray through groans and even the whisper of Abba, Father, to my heart. The other noise is social noise. You would think with pandemic we would have more quiet time. Nah. If you're the average American, you will touch your phone 2,617 times today. And you people are very accomplished, so you're in the top 10%. You will touch your phone 5,427 times. <laughs> That's 2.4 hours. Why not just touch your phone 1,517 times and take 10 minutes and have a conversation without the phone quietly with God? This is why I spend two hours mostly every morning with my journal and Bible and sit. I don't even look at my phone unless God says, look at your phone. There may be something important for you to deal with during your prayer time. And I just allow him to have my ear so I know what he's saying. This isn't just for the Moseses and the Chuck Davises. This is why I wrote this book. This is for all of us. If we will address the noise, we can have that kind of conversation with God because that's his promise to us. He's the one that invented prayer. He's the one that's given to us. When you get fluent in space, you'll start praying audacious prayers because in that space, you'll start to trust God. Trust is the confidence that you can count on his character and faith is the expectancy that when you ask, he really hears and he will do the very best. It's a great place to be. So what's the now what? I got three for you. Get my book. <laughs> Unadulterated commercial. Get the book. There's examples, testimonies. Some of you are in this book. You'll recognize the stories of places where you've been. You know the disappointment and the joy that we've experienced together in prayer. Come Wednesday night. I'll talk a little bit more about that Moses story and some other aspects of prayer. Uh, even if you've been praying for a long time, Nancy Harris, who's been praying for a long time, started reading this book, and she started sending me messages saying, I'm learning something new every day, as I am learning something new about prayer every day. Secondly, get a friend or a coach or a mentor and just talk to God. You will not learn how to pray by reading another book. You'll learn some aspects to theologize prayer, but you'll learn how to pray by praying in community. In 2019, December, Ingrid and I had been on the road for 18 months since leaving Stanwich. We'd done over 200,000 miles, five continents, 15 countries, having the time of our life. And all of a sudden came to this realization through coaching a pastor in Ontario he said, I don't have the kind of people around me that I can pray. It's a church plant. I, I just need this kind of fellowship that people know how to pray like I do. And uh, I said, well, why don't you go outside of your church and find a network of people that you can start praying regularly with? And when I said it to him, I knew at that moment I wasn't saying that for to him. I was saying that to myself. 
Because having been on the road, we didn't have a local church. We didn't have that place. Here at Stanwich, from the very first summer that I was here, I had at least one group and sometimes three and four groups that I prayed with every week. It was a part of the fabric of the formation of my soul. And so I reached out to friends who had done ministry with me in the past uh, in different places, all the way from Palestine to California, so we could get a center place uh, in time zones. And twice a month, we get together and we pray. I need it. You need those groups because you will hear best from the Holy Spirit when there's other people praying. And finally, get a journal. Write down your prayers. Because there's an instinct into us as fading secularists to naturalize when things happen, to turn our prayer answers into coincidences. And as Archbishop William Temple said once, it's interesting that when I pray, there's a lot more coincidences than when I don't pray. But when I've written them down in my journal and I come back to them, maybe even a couple years later, I realize that God has been speaking all along. In 2017, uh, God's made it pretty clear. He said, Chuck, your time at Stanwich is done. It's time to go out and do something else. And we started a transition process that led to 2018. And God said, uh, I'm giving you sealed orders. I'm not going to show you what you're going to do yet. Uh, As a means of helping us in that, he gave us a prayer from Blaise Pascal from the 1700s. Ingrid and I have memorized a lot of historical prayers that we pepper in our regular conversation with God. Knowing that other people have prayed them, it puts me in the flow of what God has been saying to his community for a long time. This prayer goes like this. Lord, let me not henceforth desire life or health except to spend them for you, with you, and in you. You alone know what is good for us. Do therefore what seems best to you. Give to us or take from us. Conform our will to yours. And grant with humble and perfect submission and with holy confidence, we may receive the divine orders of your eternal providence. And may equally accept all that we receive from you, not the enemy, all we receive from you. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. That was our prayer of surrender that we've prayed almost every day since then. About April or May, when the process was moving along and it was looking like the congregation was moving for Pastor Nathan to step into this role, I was out by my fire pit one day and uh, I was seeing the sun go down on the steeple and just enjoying the place. And uh, this word came into my ear which said, are you stupid? Why would you leave all of this? See, when you know the real voice, you know the uh, the one that's not real as well. God in his graciousness immediately came in this ear and said, oh, my son, you have no idea what I have prepared for you. Ingrid was off ministering some other part of the world like she usually was. We connected that night, and she said, strangest thing happened when I was praying this morning. She said, I wrote in my journal, Lord, are we making a mistake? We don't know how you're going to provide for us and all these things. Are we doing the right thing? And she said, the Lord said to me, oh, my daughter, you have no idea what I have prepared for you. Speak up. God is listening. Listen up. God is speaking. Amen.